Our sermon passage this morning is Matthew chapter 5, verses 21 to 26. Again, Matthew 5, verses 21 to 26. Jesus here is continuing his Sermon on the Mount, and he picks right up where he left off. This is God's word. Listen attentively to it. You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council, and whoever says, you fool, will be liable to the hell of fire. So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court, lest your accuser hand you over to the judge, and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly, I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Let us pray. Our gracious God, we confess to you that these are strong words that the Lord Jesus Christ has spoken. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would give us the ability to hear them. We thank you for your word. We thank you especially for those times when it challenges us. And we pray, dear Lord, that you would use your word in our hearts this morning. We pray this in Christ's name. Amen. In last week's passage, Jesus told those who truly wished to follow him that if they wanted to enter into the kingdom of heaven, their righteousness must exceed the righteousness of of the scribes and the Pharisees. And in this morning's and the next few weeks' passages, Jesus is going to teach us what it means to have that kind of righteousness, what it means to have a righteousness that exceeds that of the religious leaders of their day. The scribes and the Pharisees were considered by the Jews in Jesus' time to be the spiritual elite. They were the special forces of Judaism in the eyes of the people. They were looked up to, they were esteemed. But Jesus did not hold the same opinion. In Matthew chapter 23, verses 27 to 28, he says, Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites! For you are like whitewashed tombs, which outwardly appear beautiful, but within are full of dead people's bones and all uncleanness. So you also outwardly appear righteous to others, but within you are full of hypocrisy and lawlessness. The scribes and the Pharisees had all the outward trappings of religion. But it was not based upon a humble and living faith in their Redeemer. They were not pure in heart. Their exercises in religious custom were a sham because their hearts were not sincere. Their hearts were not devoted to the Lord. They may be easily able to say that they had never committed murder. But they still could easily have said to someone that he was an idiot or a fool. And because Jesus says to be angry with a brother and to speak to him in this way is to be guilty of breaking the sixth sixth commandment, you shall not murder. And so I would ask you to think on this this morning as we consider this passage. Jesus Christ gives grace to those who humbly walk with him. 
so that we can forgive and be forgiven. Jesus Christ gives grace to those who humbly walk with him so that we can be forgiven and can forgive others. I've divided this passage up simply. Verses 21 to 22, the person who is angry. And verses 23 to 26, the person who has made another angry. Again, the person who is angry, verses 21 to 22. And second, the person who has made another angry, verses 23 to 26. So let's first look at these uh, verses 21 to 22. Jesus, in verse 21, says, You have heard it said to those of old, You shall not murder, and whoever murders will be liable to judgment. Who is Jesus talking about here? Who has told those of old? Who has told those that it was said to those of old? Who's been doing the teaching? How have these people heard? Well, most likely they've heard from the scribes and the Pharisees, the teachers of the law. These were the rabbis and the lay leaders of that day. They've been teaching what God has taught. Well, who spoke to those of old? It was God himself. God himself who spoke the law to Moses and wrote it down for him on those tablets of stone. So Jesus is saying that the scribes and the Pharisees have taught the people what God himself told Moses and gave to the Israelites. You see this in Exodus chapter 22, verse 13, in the, in the list of the commandments, the Ten Commandments, where God says, you shall not murder. And Jesus is acknowledging that they were also taught what God said in Genesis chapter 9, verses 5 to 6, where God says, And for your lifeblood I will require reckoning. From every beast I will require it, and from man. From his fellow man I will require reckoning for the life of man. Whoever sheds the blood of man, by man shall his blood be shed. For God made man in his own image. Verse 21 begins, You have heard that it was said. And verse 22 begins, but I say to you. And so it sounds like Jesus here is contradicting what they have been taught, doesn't it? It sounds like he's contradicting what the people have been told by the rabbis. But if God has done the original instruction, if he is the one who spoke originally, then is Jesus truly contradicting what has been taught? Jesus, in this instance, does not dispute what the people have been told. Because it was God who originally spoke these words. And the teachers here are being faithful to what God has said when they pass along that teaching. But Jesus does have a dispute. His dispute is with the one who can recite a commandment of God. And with the same tongue, curse people who are made in the image of God. By calling them empty heads. Which is what this, this literally what this insult means, which Jesus speaks there. By calling them empty heads and fools. Well, with the same mouth, teaching them that they shall not murder. Jesus says in verse 22, But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Who is not guilty of such a thing? Which of those people who stood before Jesus or sat before Jesus as he taught this could not say, I have done this? And who of us this morning can hear these words and not feel conviction 
Jesus is saying that a person can go through his whole life and never commit murder. But we may still break the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. By being angry. By holding another in contempt. We can commit murder. Now he is not speaking here of righteous anger. We need to make that that distinction very clear. Jesus on many occasions displayed great anger toward others. Just think of the cleansing of the temple. Jesus had righteous anger. He especially had righteous anger toward the religious leaders. But his anger toward them was because of their hypocrisy. He did not sin when he displayed his anger. It is possible to be angry and not break the sixth commandment. Paul says in Ephesians 4.26, Be angry and do not sin. But we do break it by having the type of anger in our heart that causes us to hold another image bearer in contempt. It can be a blind rage that spills over into words, talking to a human being as if he's an animal. And Jesus says later in Matthew chapter 15, verses 18 to 19, but what comes out of a mouth, out of the mouth proceeds from the heart. And this defiles a person. For out of their heart come evil thoughts, murder, adultery, sexual immorality, theft, false witness, slander. The same heart that can cause a person to say idiot or fool to another person can, in the right circumstances, commit murder. If the situation is right, if there's no one around and you think you can get away with it, if there's no law in the land, the same heart that can speak these words of contempt, can actually commit murder, can do the deed. Think about how angry we are as a society. Think about how much anger and vitriol is an expression every single day. Now imagine if there was no enforcement of the law by police and judges. Imagine if you had no ability to defend yourself because that had been taken away from you. Can you imagine how high the murder rate would skyrocket? If people thought they could get away with it, With no repercussion. We should be thankful that God has used the civil government, that he's instituted the civil government to restrain evil. But government cannot change the hearts of people. And as much as courts of law try to determine motive and intent, only God can truly see what is in the heart of man. Only God knows. But the fact is that God knows. He knows what is in your heart. And so you may hide it from a judge, but you cannot hide it from the supreme judge, God himself. But what's more, only God has the ability to transform an angry heart into a loving heart. God promised in Ezekiel 36, verses 26 to 27, that he would remove his people's dead hearts of stone and give them hearts of flesh in which lives the Holy Spirit. God's promise to sinners like you and me is that when we call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, we will be saved. He will transplant our hearts. He will take out the old heart. He will put in a new heart. And when he does this, he resurrects us from the dead by breathing life into our hearts when we receive Jesus by faith. When this takes place, our hearts beat for the very first time. Now, Jesus' words to those who become angry with their brothers, who insult their brother... And call him a fool, or that they are guilty of judgment. And if malicious anger breaks the sixth commandment, 
just as murder does, then the ultimate judgment for, for it is the fire or Gehenna of hell. Some of you have a footnote in your Bibles that says this. Gehenna. Gehenna was a valley just to the east and the south of Jerusalem. It was a trash dump. And the fires in Gehenna, this, this valley, burned day and night. And so quite naturally, this valley became a picture of God's judgment, His eternal judgment on sin. Even those of us who profess faith in Christ Jesus will still struggle with anger. Many of us do. And this anger is most of the time less than righteous. And many of you may feel like it's a struggle that you cannot master. And you know what it feels like to have blind rage. But Jesus Christ promises in his word that he will send his spirit. And his spirit has come. And if you truly believe, then God's spirit lives in your hearts. And he works in your hearts. And he's transforming your heart, even now. You are not alone in this fight. If you struggle with anger, if you struggle with rage, turn it over to the Lord and rely upon Him. He will indeed give you help and assistance. Well, let's turn now and look at verses 23 to 26. In verses 21 to 22, Jesus has dealt with the person who has become angry. In verses 23 to 26, he deals with the person who has made another person angry. And Jesus first gives the illustration of a person who has come into the temple to make a sacrificial offering to the Lord. He says in verses 23 to 24, So if you are offering your gift at the altar, and there remember that your brother has something against you, leave your gift there before the altar and go. First be reconciled to your brother, and then come and offer your gift. Well, the illustration that Jesus gives is in the context of worship. But notice upon whom he lays the burden to seek reconciliation. On the person who has offended, not on the person who has been offended. In Matthew chapter 18, verses 15 to 20, Jesus tells the one who has been offended what he should do to reconcile. He doesn't, he doesn't let the person who has been offended off the hook. But here, he places the burden of reconciliation on the one who has given offense. Now, it is very easy to say something that offends another person without you realizing it. What seems to be perfectly plain and reasonable to you may be taken by someone else as being completely out of line. And this happens frequently in the church. Suppose, for instance, at a fellowship meal, you've had a discussion with another member of the church. And you do not realize it, but what you say has been offensive to that person. And because your, fr your friends, the, the offended person doesn't want to tell you. It doesn't want to hurt your feelings. It doesn't want to say anything. And so they keep quiet. And over the course of the week, you've been so busy, you haven't had a chance to think about this conversation or what you said. But when you see the person the following week, when you see the person right here, and you're reminded, and you go through that conversation, and you realize to your heart that what you have said could have easily been construed as offensive. That what you've said could have easily been taken in offense. What are you to do? What should you do? Jesus is clear. You go to this brother or sister. You repent. You seek reconciliation. You seek to work it out with them. 
you ask for forgiveness. And that brother is required by Scripture to forgive you. He's commanded to forgive your sin. Seeking forgiveness should be regularly happening in this church. Why is that? Because we're constantly sinning against each other. We're sinning without realizing it. Sometimes we're sinning realizing that we're doing it. But the fact of the matter is we should be constantly going to one another and begging for forgiveness. We have got to be quick to seek forgiveness and quick to forgive. The Apostle James in chapter 1, verse 19 in his letter says, Let every person be quick to hear, slow to speak, slow to anger. Now this could apply in a variety of situations, but especially when one believer has sinned against another. But looking back at verses 23 to 24 in our passage this morning, notice the events take place as the person is coming to worship God. And there's a significance there. Jesus says that reconciliation with the offended brother must take place before your gift is offered, before you enter into worship. Why is this? Why does Jesus say this? It is because our relationships with each other as Christians has an impact on our ability to worship God. As believers in Christ, we have fellowship with God and with other believers. We have communion with each other, especially the same members of the church. And when I sin against a brother or sister or anyone else, it affects my relationship with God because that sin is first and foremost a sin against God. You remember Psalm 51. You remember the circumstances under which that psalm was written. That after the sin of David with Bathsheba, after he had conspired to bring about the murder of her husband Uriah, he writes this, this psalm. And in verse 4, David says, Against you, you only, have I sinned and done what is evil in your sight. Now when you read this and you think about what has taken place, you read that passage, the section in 2 Samuel, and you read about what David has done. How can David say that it's only against God that he has sinned? Has he not sinned against Uriah? Has he not sinned against his own people? Ultimately, David sinned against God. Ultimately, you and I, when we sin against a brother or a sister, when we sin against any other human being because they bear the image of God, we sin against God. We sin against God. And so Jesus commands us to be reconciled to each other when we sin against each other. Now in verses 25 to 26, the illustration changes from the temple to a courtroom. And Jesus here says, come to terms quickly with your accuser while you are going with him to court. Lest your accuser hand you over to the judge and the judge to the guard and you be put in prison. Truly I say to you, you will never get out until you have paid the last penny. Now the shift from the temple to the courtroom or, or the road on the way to the courtroom does not mean that these two illustrations are disconnected. For the people to whom Jesus spoke, this illustration would be all too vivid. For them, the Roman court, the Roman legal system, was a thing to be feared. They could be easily thrown in jail. And they could easily wait there and rot until the last penny is paid. They would have been desperate, as Jesus suggests, to try and persuade their accuser to settle out of court, to settle before they ever reach the presence of that judge. Because once they're handed over to the judge, it's over. They go to the judge, they're going to be handed over to the guard, and the guard will hand them over to the jail itself. 
Jesus is telling you and me that we should be just as desperate to settle with our accuser before coming to the judge. If you're this desperate, if you don't want to go before that judge, you're going to be just as desperate to settle things with your brother or sister whom you have offended. Because in the end, ultimately, you stand before the throne of God's judgment. You stand in his courtroom. And so you should be desperate to reconcile with your brother before you come into his presence, before you come to worship the living and true God. If you fear a human judge and the penalty he can give, how much more should you fear the supreme judge who has the power to cast you into the hell of fire? These are strong words. This shows you how seriously Jesus takes this. These words must be strong. Because what should be so easy, what should be so natural among believers, reconciliation between us, is often so hard. It's the last thing we either think to do or wish to do. And as a result, we do not seek forgiveness as we should. Now in this passage, Jesus has put the burden of righteous behavior squarely on the shoulders of both parties. The person who is angry and the person who has made another angry. The person who is angry has a duty not to commit murder in his heart. His anger must not be unrighteous. He must not hold his brother in contempt. He must not do anything to reduce that person as one who has been made in the image of God. To make them less than a human being. And if we're guilty of this kind of anger, we must not allow the sun to go down on our anger before we reconcile with our brother. And if we're guilty of making someone else angry, if we're guilty of causing offense, even if we didn't mean to, but we become aware of it, what should we do? We go to that person and we reconcile with him. If these are your brothers and sisters in Christ, you will spend eternity with them. How can you not reconcile with them now when you have earthly divisions? If we've offended, we must beg for forgiveness. And seek to restore that relationship with the one whom we've, we've offended. Now, formerly, before you believed in Jesus Christ, you could not do this. It was not within your power. But now that you do believe, you have been forgiven of your sins. And you have an obligation before God to forgive those who seek your forgiveness. You have an obligation to forgive others. You have an obligation to seek out and seek forgiveness from others. Jesus' death on the cross and his resurrection from the dead have made this kind of reconciliation between you and others possible. First, because you've been reconciled to God. And second, because you've been given the Holy Spirit who gives you the willingness to do it, but also the ability to do it. Be reconciled, both to God and to one another. Let us go before the Lord in prayer. Our gracious God, we come before you and we confess to you that we have not repented to one another of our sins. We confess to you that we have had unrighteous anger, that we have held our fellow human beings in contempt. We have held those who are in the household of faith in contempt. 
And so we come before you with repentant hearts and seek your forgiveness. Compel us now, O Lord, to go to those with whom we've been angry and seek their forgiveness as well. But Lord, we also confess that we have offended others, deliberately or not. Lord, use your Holy Spirit to bring those occasions to mind. Remind us and then enable us, O Lord, to go to that brother or sister and ask for their forgiveness. We pray this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.